Well, uh, with the mockery of Prime Minister Morrison this week for daring to say he believed in the power of prayer and others should maybe pray for the end of the drought, it sounds uh, to me like a good week to turn to Philippians and explore the theme of public Christianity in contested times. Uh, A comment about please pray for the drought from a Prime Minister in ages past might have just simply passed through without notice. Lovely, quaint, but actually this week uh, certain segments of the media and certainly the Twitter sphere were full of vitriol at this idea that our Prime Minister would pray and ask us to do so. So how do we keep our cool in contested times? How do we still remain public and generous and front-footed in these contested times? I believe a letter like Philippians, uh, in some ways the whole New Testament, but Philippians in particular is a great letter for us to study in contested times because, of course, Christianity was highly contested when the letter of Philippians uh, was written. We're going to do things a little bit differently uh, in this series. You may uh, notice uh, three barstools behind me. This is because I'm going to give you a relatively brief exposition of uh, the passage just read to us. Um, And then I'm going to ask uh, my colleagues Santino and Ness uh, to come up and practically reflect with us on the meaning of this passage. We haven't uh, colluded, uh, so they're free to say whatever they want as they've reflected also on this passage. But for me, just a straightforward uh, exposition. That's why I'd love to think you have it open in front of you. Uh, Three things worth knowing uh, about the historical background uh, to the letter. Uh, The first is that the city of Philippi was small, maybe only 15,000 people, the size of Roseville and Linfield combined, but highly significant, or at least they thought of themselves as significant, for a bunch of good reasons. One, they sat on the superhighway of the ancient world, the Via Ignatia, which ran straight across the top of uh, Greece. It was the way of connecting the West, Rome, and the western part of the Roman Empire with the East, with uh, Asia Minor, Turkey, and Syria, and Israel, and so on. So living right on that superhighway, they thought of themselves as in the know, and presumably they were. They were also elevated to the status of a Roman colony, which doesn't sound like fun, but actually it's uh, one of the highest privileges you could get as a city in the Roman world. It basically meant that Emperor Augustus blessed this city as a mini-Rome with uh, taxation, relief, uh, free land for retiring soldiers and so on. So they came from a proud city with strong connections uh, to the imperial authorities. The second thing is related, uh, really. Um, Philippians was written at a time of great pressure on Christianity. Not quite the pressure of the late first century. Uh, We've just endured four months of Revelation, where we know Christians are being killed in that period. This is slightly before that period, early 60s. Still, Paul himself is in prison, we learned. The passage just read to us, uh, say from verse 13, and he'll mention a couple of other times. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. He's in a Roman prison, awaiting trial uh, before the emperor. But curiously, the Philippians themselves are under pressure in a similar way. If you glance down to the text we'll look at next week, verse 29 of chapter 1, Paul just acknowledges it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. We can uh, conclude from this that they are suffering some kind of pressure from Roman authorities. 
The third thing to know about historical background is the occasion of the letter. We know the exact occasion of the letter. The Philippians heard that Paul was in prison awaiting trial and they panicked that the chief apostle to the Gentiles is now locked up, so maybe the gospel is locked up too. And what they did, what they did is beautiful. They sent Epaphroditus, one of their own key leaders, who in the letter is called an apostle, by the way, a key leader in Philippi, with a great big bag of goodies. We don't know what were in the goodies, uh, but uh, if you turn over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 14, you get a sense of this financial contribution the Philippians have been making to Paul for the last uh, 12 years, from AD 50, when he founded the church, right through to this time, AD 62, when he's in jail. Uh, chapter 4, verse 14. Yet it was good of you to share, remember that word, share, it's the word partner, koinonia, in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church, koinonia, again, uh, shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, I desire what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, acceptable acceptable sacrifice, and so on. Paul is in jail and one day Epaphroditus turns up probably with an escort, uh, with a great big parcel of goodies, having made the 14-day journey from Philippi all the way to Rome. And Paul's thankfulness spills over in the very opening lines of the letter as we pivot to the thanksgiving. Most of Paul's 13 letters open with a thanksgiving. Lots of studies about these thanksgivings. It's quite an interesting element of his letters. And the thanksgivings usually have a key theme that he wants to pursue in the rest of the letter. And we'll see what the theme is here. But before we get to that, I just want you to notice at the very front of the letter, this is actually a letter from Paul and Timothy. We, we call this Paul's letter to the Philippians. But um, you know, when we do that, we were cheating Timothy out of the royalties uh, for this uh, incredible document. It's Paul and Timothy's letter to the Philippians. And, and there's my justification uh, for team preaching this, by the way, because it's a team letter. So, may, yeah, no, okay, right. Um, it's also written uh, not only to the, to the people of God in Philippi, the, the, the lay people, but notice in the next line it says, together with the overseers and deacons. Not only is this a team letter, it's actually aimed at the leaders of the church as well as the lay people of the church. So we're all sitting under this uh, together. Uh, the thing I want you to notice about Thanksgiving, though, is it zeroes in on one thing. Here it is, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you. You could just feel the joy here. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The key thought here is their partnership in the gospel from the first day, AD 50, to now. AD 62 when he's in jail. Partnership in the gospel. Koinonia eisto evangelion. The same word used at the end of the letter. It means financial partnership. He's not referring to the fact that they believe the gospel. It's not that uh, partnership. It's the actual contribution 
uh, to the gospel. This is quite clear uh, from the end of the letter, where in chapter 4, as we read a moment ago, this same word partner is uh, used, but it's clear there Paul means financial contribution. Uh, They are business partners with Paul in the advancement of the gospel. And once we know this, it unlocks the rest of the thanksgiving. Verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This good work is the good work of their partnership in the gospel. Um, But it's interesting, isn't it? What he described in verse uh, 5 as their partnership is now God's good work in them. And you often see this in Paul's letter. The great things you are doing for the Lord are actually also his wonderful work in you. And uh, verse 7, the uh, partnership theme spills over even there. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, you all share, that's the word partner again, in God's grace with me. Now, I don't mean to remove God from any line of Scripture, but God doesn't appear in this line. Uh, The NIV have added this, I think, uh, on this occasion, mistakenly. It simply says, you all share in the grace or this grace with me. It's another reference to the grace of their giving to the work of the gospel, which may sound puzzling until you see right across Paul's letters, he frequently talks about money as both sharing or partnering and as a grace. Here's a good example in 2 Corinthians 8. Listen to the same language. Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. That refers directly to the Philippian churches, by the way. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of koinonia, same words, in this service to the saints. But just as you excel, you Corinthians excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. That's what Paul's referring to through the whole uh, thanksgiving in Philippians. His fondest recollection of them, the thing he thanks God for, is their 12-year-long time and time again, contribution to his gospel work. The lesson I take from Paul's language of partnership for the gospel is very simple. We don't all do the same thing to evangelize the world. We're not all evangelists, but we are all partners together in the work of the gospel. Financially, through prayers, through the godly life, through bringing people to church, These are all equal partnerships. And actually, if you don't mind a little tangent here, this was a significant little contribution of Donald Robinson. In a series of essays, um, I guess early 80s or late 70s, uh, Donald Robinson made this very robust case that the New Testament never teaches we're all evangelists. Never. 
and it caused quite some controversy and actually uh, was the background to my own investigation in my PhD, long before I uh, knew Steve and Annie, um, was this contribution Donald, Donald Romans had, had made, uh, because I was, I was exploring the question, how did Christianity grow in the Roman world when it's clear not every Christian thought that they were to evangelize the world? And so I sort of owe a great debt to Donald Robinson. I'm very pleased that I was able to uh, drop in my PhD for him after I completed it and then meet with him afterwards, which was terrifying. <laughs> but your gifts to the work of the gospel, your prayers for the work of the gospel, your inviting friends to hear the gospel, these are not second string, unspiritual activities. They are koinonia eis toikiwengelion. They are partnership for the gospel. May we long continue that. The Philippians' passion for the work of the gospel spills over into the missionary update in verse 12. Don't panic, I'll come back to verse 9. This missionary update from verse 12, where he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, uh, that what has happened to me, my imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel, and so on it goes for several paragraphs. And this is unique in Paul's letters. There are lots of unique things, actually, in, in Philippians. Um, Paul will often end letters with a single sentence about what he's up to. He'll say, start, he'll end the letter by saying, oh, by the way, I'm going down to Nowra uh, to preach the gospel. Then I think I'm heading to Melbourne, and, and if the winter's not too foul, uh, I might stay there for, for the winter. And you, know, this, you, you get that just in a sentence from Paul. But never at the front and never long. But here in Philippians, several paragraphs advising what he's up to and how it's going. Why? Because the Philippian church, uniquely, were desperate to support Paul in his gospel work. And that's why verse 12 opens with, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually, actually served to advance the gospel, contrary to expectation. As a result of my imprisonment, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Contrary to expectation, Paul's imprisonment has led to tons of people hearing about the gospel. I assume he means, how else would the gospel get in a Roman jail? Unless I was put here. And then he says, and, and the brothers and sisters um, outside of jail, the, the, the Christians of Rome where he's imprisoned, have also been emboldened to preach the gospel. Now, personally, this is another thing Donald Robinson agreed with, uh, the expression the brothers used here, hoi adelphoi, uh, almost certainly means colleagues, not brothers and sisters, general uh, Christians. Uh, because in Paul's letters, 22 times... Uh, the brothers refers to believers in general, but 24 times it refers specifically to colleagues. And I think this is one of those occasions. What it means is that uh, Paul's imprisonment has actually inspired people outside prison in Rome, the colleagues of Paul, the fellow preachers, to get excited and preach the gospel come what may. Paul's point is that cultural, legislative, circumstantial, Defeat doesn't mean gospel defeat. What has happened to me, he says, has actually served to advance the gospel. 
I love Paul's spirit. He knows that the gospel is not hindered by circumstances. And it's out of this lovely gospel spirit that he makes the extraordinary statement of verse 15 about some of these preachers hassling him in their preaching. It is true that some here in Rome preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. That sounds bizarre, right? We need to realize that Paul was seen as a liberal, lefty underminer in the first century. Someone who might separate the church from its Jewish traditions. And there were some preachers who were dead against him. They preached the real gospel, but they hated Paul. They preached Christ. But I can imagine in Rome they were preaching and saying, oh, but we're not with Paul. He deserves to be in jail. Uh, We look forward to justice being meted out to him. We're not with him. We preach the true Christianity. The thing is, though, what does Paul say? I don't care. So long as they're preaching Christ, that's fabulous. I rejoice, he says. Now, clearly, they're not heretics. Otherwise, he wouldn't say they are preaching Christ. They're just jerks. The gospel can't be hindered by circumstances. God can work miracles through what look to us losses. And he can even use jerks. Let me close with a very important caveat. We know what Paul thanked God for uh, when he thought of the Philippians. What did he pray for? Well, that's what verses 9 to 11 are. And this is my prayer. You imagine, you're the Philippians, you, you love Paul, you revere Paul. And he says, this is my prayer for you. When someone you revere says, I'm praying this for you. I mean, if Glenn Davies rang me up, right, the Archbishop, and said, John, this has been my prayer for you this week. I'd go, yes. I imagine the Philippians going, yeah, what do you pray for us? Well, look what he prays. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. He doesn't pray that they would be even more evangelistic. He's confident they've got that covered. What does he pray? That they would love one another more and more. In fact, there's a missing adverb here, eti. It it, it literally says uh, that your love may abound even more and more, which is bad English, and I understand why the NIV removed the eti, right? But it's even more and more. And I think there's a little nuance here. You can't have enough love. Even more and more may your love abound. In the Christian life, you can have excesses of all sorts of things, an excess of liturgy, an excessive uh, association with music, I think you can be overly committed to evangelism. You can be too committed to social justice. You can't have an excess of love. But notice it's a particular kind of love. Look what he says, that your love may abound even more and more. And look what he says, in knowledge and depth of insight. 
so that you may be able to discern what is best. Uh, Christian love is informed by certain knowledge. Love in knowledge. It's not a warm feeling only. It's a commitment to the good of others, informed by Christian truth. I know I've said this a million times, but I don't mind saying it again. Christianity tries to flex the muscles of conviction and compassion at the same time. And some churches have been all conviction throughout history and very little compassion. And other churches have been all compassion and very little conviction. But actually, genuine Christian love abounds more and more in knowledge and insight into God's truth. It's conviction and compassion at the same time. I close by saying, partners in the spread of the gospel, community shaped by truth and love. Partners in the spread of the gospel, community shaped by truth and love. These are Paul's great hopes for the Philippians. And therefore, this is God's word to St. Andrews tonight. Let me pray as my colleagues come up. Lord, uh, will you, in your mercy, write this word on our hearts that we might hear your voice and be the people you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Ness, Santino. Uh, Ness, um, reflect away. Yeah, thanks. I, um, I've been reading this passage all week and have been really personally impacted by uh, the mood of love and the affectionate tone of this beginning part of the letter. And so my reflections really come out of the beginning, sort of 1 uh, to 11. Um, you write in saying that they are... Um, supporting Paul financially, that their partnership has been expressed in financial um, and material support, but it's not very transactional, is it, the message um, in this letter. They could have just, he could have just said to them, thanks for all the money and the gifts, um, you have stuff, I need it, uh, it's God's anyway, keep it coming, full stop, end of letter. Um, but there's, there's much more in there um, that reflects Paul's love for them. There's thanksgiving and joy and a longing to be with them and to encourage them. And in return, uh, you can see the affection they have for him, the way that they respond compassionately to his needs, um, the way that they long for an update. And um, it was that mood of affection that really impacted me. There to be a community of love, distinctive in love. By contrast to that... I, uh, last year, was um, in attendance of a special meeting at our school. Um, a band subcommittee needed to understand their position within the structure of the PNC, and so a special PNC meeting was called. I see a few smiles of acknowledgement of what these meetings can be like. And while they did have the um, common purpose of seeing the band program thrive, the meeting really was attended by people with very tightly held views and at times it was very defensive, um, very critical and um, at times even a bit aggressive. And it left casualties and the band program suffered. 
And I share this because um, I imagine you've had similar experiences. If not a school meeting, then um, perhaps a local sporting club or a workplace. But never church, right? Never church. Mm. Never church. And we are to be so different to the world in this regard. We are to be distinctive in love. That actually as we work towards our common goal, which is the advancement of the gospel, that we do so fueled by and characterised by Christian love. And I think that there are three things in uh, this passage that really practically help me personally uh, grow more and more in this love and are helpful for us as a church here. So first of all, um, they pray for one another. So Paul prays for them and they also pray for him. Yeah, I forgot to point that out. Verse (laughs) verse 19. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they pray for him. He's thankful for their prayers. And I think that um, when you pray for people, it fosters a love for them, a concern and a compassion for them. It's hard to be critical of someone that you're praying for. And I think it's important for us to pray together as a church for our partnership in the advancement of the gospel. We do that when we gather every term together and we listen to the agenda that we have for our community and beyond. Um, And we pray for one another as we work towards that. But also I think in our personal devotion, it's important that we pray for one another, that we pray for our partnership in the gospel. And secondly, I think uh, I, was, I loved and noticed the way that he identifies Paul and Timothy themselves as servants. Now, usually when you read his letters, he calls himself an apostle, but in this case he calls himself a servant. And there's no place for selfish ambition amongst servants. And we're servants with him. We're servants of Christ. We're servants to the gospel. And we serve each other. Later on in the letter, um, Paul tells them to put the needs of others above their own. And I think as we serve one another alongside one another, that we will grow in love for one another that will benefit the advancement of the gospel in the world. And finally, um, it begins and is uh, completed, the, the good work that they start, by God himself. So our partnership in the gospel begins in God and is fueled by God and is spurred on by God and completed by God. And so we are to uh, depend on him and uh, swim in his grace as we foster love for one another and, um, and share that love with the world. We don't have to manufacture it and we don't have to do it in our own strength, but we draw on his love for us, our understanding of his character, and we imitate his mercy and his gentleness and patience as we share the gospel with the world. So those are things that impacted me. What about you, Santino? Thanks, Ness. Um, for those who don't know, I've been here for eight years, and this is the first time John's let me loose <laughs> on the microphone. So how long did you say I've got? <laughs> no, it's, it's not the first time I've asked you to. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. When I uh, read uh, this passage from Philippians, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel just jumped out at me and the power of the gospel. And most of you will know that Paul, prior to becoming a Christian, was quite a zealot, a Jew that was, I think it says in Galatians, he was a, a Jew ahead of his time as far as his age. You know, he was right up there. And I, I marvel at the fact that this man, some years later, and John would know how many years later this exactly is, finds himself in jail. And you'd think, if it was me, I'd be going... Is this really all worth it? But the gospel has transformed his heart, his mind, his soul. And to then find somebody or others out there who are proclaiming the gospel 
but giving, uh, or causing him difficulties and troubles, and yet still be thankful for the gospel being proclaimed is absolutely extraordinary. And many of us will have come across uh, Christian saints that we've um, been around in churches and things where they are so transformed by an understanding of the gospel that they see things through a lens that that I wish I had more of, and, and a particular lady that actually John uh, will know from the good old Baptist days, um, uh, Jean was her name, and, and Jean was one of these ladies who had had a difficult life, um, marriage difficulties, health difficulties, financial difficulties, and yet there wasn't a time that you didn't find her absolutely rejoicing in her faith and in the gospel, and, uh, and, and so I can well imagine she got the gospel as I try and further and further myself try and, and understand the gospel. And of course, in any work situation, in family, in life, we come across situations where we have, we think, great opportunity to grumble, and yet better we don't grumble, better that we actually do see things uh, in the perspective of the gospel and, and eternity. So that, that was the first thing that, uh, that struck me. I guess the, the, the second thing um, is, is the whole attitude of you know, denominational um, differences and things, and we sort of joke about them, but if the gospel is being proclaimed, it doesn't matter if you think that someone's not quite doing it the way that you think it is exactly the right way. And I know I have been guilty over the years of, you know, looking over at another denomination or another way of doing things and, and sort of questioning their motives. And, you know, and I've always been one who's always thought, you know, you've got to look at the heart of the person, you know, that's more important than the outcome. But when it comes to the gospel, perhaps it is actually the outcome that is the most important thing, and we do set aside uh, people's motivations. And I guess also uh, John's already spoken quite uh, significantly on this uh, about this idea of being the partner, of being a partner in the gospel in partnership. And yes, we're not all called to be evangelists. We're not all called to work for a church. We're not all called uh, called to be missionaries or, or all the different forms that. A more obvious version of Christian um, service might look like, and yet there is a way that we can all partner in the gospel, um, and that can be, of course, through prayer and through uh, our, our time um, outside of perhaps our work hours. But here we are talking about the financial support that uh, the Philippians were giving Paul in his mission to to evangelize, and. John mentioned also in Corinthians. Was Corinthians that you mentioned? Two Corinthians, yeah. yeah. Where it talked about give as much as you can. And if it's a case that we're not all called to be evangelists or all called to do things in this sort of um, abandoned way out there, then perhaps one of the ways we should be looking at it is abandoning our wallet a little bit. You know? And would, you can't measure, of course, being put in jail and saying, well, that must be worth you know, reducing my financial worth by X percent. I mean, obviously, there's no way you can look at that. But I do question for myself, and perhaps there are some here that might um, question this as well, whether or not if someone's prepared to be in a jail for the gospel, then perhaps giving as much as I can means a little bit differently to what I have been doing up until now. Yeah. Uh, we're happy to take uh, any questions collectively, throw them, throw them to any of us. I'm intrigued by this growing even more and more in love. Can you help us with that? How do, I know it's the work of God, but help us. How do we, how do, we do that? Well, I'll go theological first. Uh, it, it arises from uh, a better 
appreciation of what Christ has done for you. At the heart of Philippians, which I don't have in front of me now, um, no, my Bible's better. Um, Excuse me. At the heart of Philippians um, is that amazing uh, Christ hymn, uh, which, which says, uh, chapter 2, 5, in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, then it goes into this beautiful hymn, being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took the nature of a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient even to death on a cross. And so that's the centre of Philippians. And I think it's a nice picture of the centre of the Christian life. Everything uh, comes out of this. The deeper our insight and appreciation of God's own self-giving for us, the deeper our love. Something too that I have um, done more and more of, maybe as uh, the need has has arisen, is um, to practice personal and genuine confession and repentance all the time, as needed. Because the more you experience God's mercy and forgiveness and generosity personally, then I think you do abound in love more and more. And all of those traits of Christian love that we're talking about that further the gospel um, become close to hand because it's something you've experienced regularly and um, really genuinely, authentically in your own heart and life. Uh, Just interested in uh, reading on past verse 9 into verses 10 and 11 that he's asking that, um, he's praying that they will grow in knowledge and depth of insight so that, so there's a purpose. The purpose of this growth is that you may be able to discern what's best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ and filled with the fruit of righteousness. I'd just be interested in some of your commentary on that because at face value, it sort of sounds like a works type of thing, doesn't it? That uh, uh, being pure and blameless is not so much a gift of grace and forgiveness, but the result of ongoing fruitfulness and, and effort in the faith. Yeah, it's both, of course. Uh, I mean, I know I'm not teaching you this, Tony, but uh, it's a good it's a good question. Um, so they're already Christians. They've already believed the gospel. Uh, they're already saved by grace. Uh, they already have the purity and blamelessness of Jesus covering their sins, but the goal of the Christian life is to actually live up to that purity that is already ours. So Christ's righteousness has been credited to us, so let's live up to that righteousness. Christ's love stands in the place of our selfishness, but nonetheless, let's try and live up to that uh, love. So I think that's all that's going on there, so that you may be uh, able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It just means that on the day of Christ, you will have experienced the growth in righteousness, that is, abounding in love, uh, that is uh, the appropriate calling of every Christian. We are saved by grace, but we're not just left in our sin. God wants to transform us uh, to be as pure. Yeah, I was just going to say, is the word discern, I think, for me, one of the critical words in there, because the more and more that I um, focus on him, understand the gospel, read, read God's word, then I think my discernment becomes greater and therefore the outworkings are better. 
I'm just interested, John, you said <clears throat> you think sometimes we can evangelise too much. I'm just wondering how you think that might uh, well, happen. Sure. I, I don't know that... Well, I didn't mean to say, if I did... Um, I apologise. didn't mean we could evangelise too much, but a church can have an overemphasis on evangelism. I was just trying to say there are many things you could have an overemphasis of in church. Um, you know, music, liturgy, social justice, and I do think evangelism. Um, I, I know of churches that are so about uh, reaching uh, the lost with the gospel that they will tread on anyone and anything to get there. The programs are so brutal, the, the tasks they demand everyone to do, unrealistic. Uh, they become like in the business of saving souls and the generation of a community of love, which of course is the, uh, the, the thing out of which a zeal for the gospel ought to grow, is overlooked. Um, so I just want to give a priority to community of love out of which flows um, the proper emphasis on evangelism. A comment came this morning from Judy, who's um, a tenant Christian who does a lot of work in nursing homes and, and people who are um, unwell. And often the initial backpack from them is, I don't want to hear about the gospel, I don't want to hear about God, that sort of thing. And, and she made the comment, I just say, well, do you want to be my friend or can I be your friend? You know, and that, that starting point of showing love and, and interest in the person's life, I think, can be obscured by a total... Uh, blinkered, sort of narrow, hit them with the gospel at every moment of the day. Sort of thing. Partners in the spread of the gospel, community shaped by truth and love. That's God's word to us tonight.